My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Candida Hadley, Suzanne Marshall, and Andrea Smith. Becoming a mother or with some gendered differences, also other sorts of parents who play a significant caregiving role, can be really, really hard. Yes, it can be wonderful too, and have moments of satisfaction and joy and fulfillment, but for many women, those initial years as a mother come along with an incredible weight of social isolation, personal constraint, and intensely regulatory expectation. Candida Hadley, Suzanne Marshall, and Andrea Smith are all mothers. They all also have histories of grassroots political involvement of various sorts, including in feminist politics. So a few years ago, when they were hanging out and talking about being moms, about the isolation and about all of the other motherhood-associated challenges, it was a perfectly natural step for them to take those conversations in public directions. As the Halifax Motherhood Collective, they've held several events over the last couple of years. Importantly, this work has involved rethinking the practicalities of what a parent and child-friendly grassroots event actually looks like, something most movements and grassroots organizations grounded in the dominant culture completely ignore, even when they do pay token attention to providing childcare. And through these events, most prominently alternative Mother's Day gatherings in the last two years, they've given mothers and other parents a chance to come together, to share their experiences, and to collectively develop politics flowing from critical analyses of contemporary ideologies and diverse lived experiences of motherhood. In particular, they've developed an analysis that points to the nexus of capitalism, patriarchy, and colonialism in shaping the social organization and the ideologies of motherhood that dominate in North America today. Hadley, Marshall, and Smith talk with me about those experiences, ideologies, and critical analyses, about the Halifax Motherhood Collective, and about how they hope to build on this work in the future. We spoke by Skype from Halifax. My name is Candida Hadley, and I am a mother of two children, and I am also a managing editor with Fernwood Publishing. And I'm Andrea Smith. I am a mother of a rambunctious three-year-old, and I work as a health researcher for paid employment. I'm Suzanne Marshall. I am likewise the mother of a rambunctious three-year-old, and I also work like Candida in literary production. I'm a publications manager for Dalhousie Architectural Press with a background in academia, I guess, and an interest in radical feminism. <laughs> The Motherhood Collective started three years ago, almost, with me, Candida, and Suzanne talking about the importance of Mother's Day and about how the work of mothering was so hard and consumptive of our beings in every way, shape, or form, and yet so undervalued and isolating, especially with younger children. And through that, we saw how things like Mother's Day can really trivialize that politic 
And we saw there's just like a gap in the left in our experience here locally around organizing around the politics of motherhood. After I had my first son, who is eight now, my political life kind of dropped off a lot. And not because I wasn't still interested in politics, but because it's very difficult to be involved in organized politics when you have a small child for a number of reasons. And that was very frustrating. And I found myself thinking all the time that like people believed that I was no longer political because I was a parent. And, you know, that's not actually the case. Right. And my politics were maybe even stronger than ever, but had to be lived differently as a result of the reality of living with a small child. And so my children are older than Andrea and Suzanne's children. So I have already struggled through that kind of isolation and was very happy to join them in really discussing this issue more broadly. When we got together and really started talking, I think mostly for our own sanity to begin with as like-minded people who like to assess and critique the situations we find ourselves in, the application of that critique to the wider public just seemed a natural step to take for us. It felt like we had to reach out. These things were so important that we could not only become angry about them and become impassioned about them amongst ourselves, but also felt the need to involve the community. I don't know that there was a lot of intentionality to it. I think Sudan, maybe Kedidi, you said it too, that there was this sort of survivalness associated with it, that for us as being politically oriented in the world, to have a lifeline to our politics, it serves multiple purposes, right? So politics as being an important part of our being meant that by organizing around the politics of motherhood, we could still express ourselves and be ourselves in the world, something which children, young children in particular, hamper or change, shift, depending on the day. Organizing mothers is actually quite tricky. It's <laughs> tricky to be an organizer of mothers. It's tricky to be a mother organizer. Those mm. things pose unique challenges that I'm not sure that we have the answers to or have actually successfully overcome yet. But certainly what we have done is that the Alternative Mother's Day event. We've pulled two of those off. That is the cornerstone of our public activity right now. I don't think that there actually was a lot of conversation about it. We were like, we should do this thing. Yeah, you want to do this thing? Yeah, let's do it. And then we just did it. We just kind of made it happen. And that was pretty miraculous, actually. The response that we've had has been heartfelt and it has been impressive. And I think it speaks to a real community need that's being felt in every household with children and needs more public discussion. I think what is neat about our collective is that loosely it's about public discussion around motherhood, but it's about the politics of motherhood. Mm -hmm. And that politic both contains a lived experience and the ideological elements which we assert affect all of us. Irrespective of gender and age and whether or not one ever intends to have children, mm -hmm. that the ideologies of motherhood are part and parcel of the ideologies of capitalism yes. and patriarchy and have strong connections with our colonial history as well. What we have found is that our critique has tremendous ramifications for not only ideological spheres, but lived personal spheres, domestic spheres, that it provides a very useful point from which to begin talking about reforming relationships, reforming communities, reforming larger social structures, and at least informing discussions around those things. Yeah.
that it really takes into consideration, that it knits together very usefully a number of important social critiques. Tell me more about both the lived experience of motherhood that's sort of the grounding for the work that you're doing, as well as about the analysis that you've come to and the broader questions of ideology and social organization of motherhood. So I mentioned lived experience, I'll start there. What was really intense for me and I think us was how having a child and holding an infant and all of a sudden this programming, what felt like programming came out, this intense sense of critique towards the project of being a mother and the sense in which one was always at fault for whatever the scenario. That to me, as someone who identified as a feminist and taken on the fight against my own exploitation and oppression, it became very clear to me that the social indoctrination around becoming a mother is much deeper than I ever thought it might be. And that whenever there's ideological programming like that, because it really did feel like programming, there's got to be like, why is it beneficial for the current order of society for us mm-hmm. to be so self-endowed and afflicted with a sense of the duty falls entirely on us? and cuts us off from the world. I can maybe speak to some of the broader like ideological issues that guide the way that we think. So I mean, I think that we are really influenced by Marxist feminists, for example, like Silvia Federici and Maria Mize, who have both done a lot of work looking at the root of these ideas about motherhood and find that root at the intersection of patriarchy and capitalism, particularly So we can't separate the way that we understand social reproduction, what it means to be a mother from capitalism and the social, political, economic order of the society in which we live. So Maria Mize and Silvia Federici both really look at the way that it shapes this idea that we still hold about social reproduction and the devaluing of social reproduction and then the exploitation and oppression of women in that devaluation and understanding how central and essential that is to the functioning of capitalism, that capitalism works because it has the free labor of half of the world's population in the sense of social reproduction. Obviously, it uses a lot of other free labor too, but, you know, that social reproduction is actually essential to the functioning of capitalism. As a woman without children, I was surrounded by these culturally hegemonic ideas, but was able to function largely independent of them. It didn't seem to really affect my everyday life until the moment I had my child. And then I was plunged (laughs) into this understanding of the ways in which those forces were shaping me, shaping my life, shaping the constant social relations of which I was a part and not a part as I found myself increasingly isolated, that the world was not created suddenly around someone like me. There was a gap there where I used to feel like I fit and functioned easily with privilege within my world. And suddenly that had fallen apart. Social reproduction is key to capitalism Mm -hmm. in the way that women's labor is exploited for the reproduction of labor of others. Mm -hmm. But it's also the stuff of life, right? And so part of the lived experience piece is that it's the stuff of life which we're alienated from. We're alienated from children in our society or objects that people have that we shuffle through different spaces of the life course until they're ready to become workers. 
and we're alienated from the experience of interacting and raising children. So part of the feeling of smashing into a wall that comes with parenting amongst some of us in society, and I think it does affect actually privileged people who have focused on careers, who have moved for family in particular, mm-hmm. that we experience that because we had not had access to many women talk about not being having ever held a baby before, right? And so here's part of that links into the devaluing of social reproduction. How is it that we are so isolated from children? If we're working outside our homes, then we spend vast hours away from our families, away from our older relations, away from our children. That is not, many people would argue, a natural way of living one's life. The way that our society is constructed demands that of us. It is very difficult to craft a life that manages to avoid those traps. You need tremendous capital, literally, to be able to do it. And we've also stripped, because of that organization, time away from every other part of our lives. And I think the experience of parenthood brings that home to you tremendously. On the one hand, it is not seeing your children enough and getting really pissed off at your dish and dirt and laundry problem on the most basic level. But on a larger level, it is the utter devaluation and evaporation of the time in your life that ought really in a better world to be allowed for those parts of your life. Tell me about the initial Alternative Mother's Day event that you organized. The first Alternative Mother's Day event, we had a two-hour block of time and we had two rooms. We had just glass doors in between them and we had a bunch of men in particular who were in that room looking after everybody's children and then the people who were attending the event, which were much more than we anticipated, I think. We had 40 or 50 people. So we had imagined that we were going to spend the first hour sharing our stories and everybody sharing their stories about their experiences of motherhood. And then the second hour, we were going to talk about what to do about it, right? Let's brainstorm some ideas about how we can break through this wall and do something different here. We never made it to that second hour. The first hour spilled over into the second hour and probably could have gone on a lot longer. Each of us told our story. And then we went around the room and people told theirs. And there was such a diversity of mothers there. And there were some fathers there as well. Everybody had a different story to tell, but there was a theme that ran throughout every one of those stories. And that was the theme of isolation and loneliness and feeling cut off from the person that they had been before they became mothers. And it was a really powerful event. I mean, it was a very successful event and people were really engaged. And people shared their stories willingly. It was a really great event to organize. I think for us, having organized sort of lefty events in the past, here we had something where we had to make it. So like we had to have decent childcare, real childcare. And what we mean by that is childcare that parents can actually feel comfortable leaving children. There was a very young baby left in the care of one of our caregivers. But that's because the rooms were attached. Parents could come and go in between the space. The sight lines were there. We brought toys and blankets and diaper change stations, and we made it so that it was possible. There was arts and crafts. We had almost 10 caregivers. The childcare was used. So in terms of events, it was one of the first events that children were a part of that. And we should also make clear that children were, of course, utterly welcome within our own larger circle and that there were people who had their kids with them as well. 
And the second piece is we shared our stories in framing the event, but when we've organized events, we're really trying to break away from the didactic format that is typical of so much of our political life. With people with expertise, we didn't come with any sense of expertise. We had an agenda in the way that social revolution is an agenda. <laughs> uh, but we certainly didn't have a roadmap to get there. And we really did take serious this idea that we needed to know what the problem was. And the stories was a go around. We did a go around of 40 people. And it was a really profound experience. And, you know, at the end of 40 people, we were all exhausted because it was emotionally exhausting. But it wasn't boring. People built on each other and spoke to each other. So an alternative format is, I think, a really important part of mm -hmm. our organizing principles, I think, because we understand that when you have children, you can't, if I miss 20 minutes of a lecture, well, what, what happened? So we need a format that allows for people to come and go in and out of the conversation. From an organizing perspective, so much of our critique has been the nuts and bolts of it. What you need to involve people who have human responsibilities unavoidable human responsibilities all the time. It's more than just a room and some coffee. It takes a lot of planning and thought, and the degree to which that is necessary speaks volumes about the ways in which our quote-unquote ordinary lives are organized around the presupposition of childlessness. This is growing as well into, I think, a critique of public and private groups in general, social organization, in terms of the way that it presupposes an utterly independent, flexible human being as the base model of participation that is not actually the way in which many or even most people are able to live their lives something that we've talked about is that our focus is on the experience of mothering, mm -hmm. but we recognize that mothering is part of caring non-wage labor. So, you know, it's also about people who are, as we age, caring for others, caring for ill partners, family, mm -hmm. friends, and all that sort of caring labor on top of wage labor, yeah, <laughs> right? Yes, that makes right. us unavailable for things. So thinking about different ways of organizing that are inclusive of that dynamic, that dynamic of having other people who are actually your priority in life. Mm -hmm. And then a long list after that that are necessary. <laughs> and then you really want to go to an event. <laughs> Was last year's Alternative Mother's Day event a similar sort of thing? We decided that we similarly wanted to have a large gathering, but at the same time, we focused more specifically. We decided to acknowledge, to a certain extent, the privilege of our position as white people, all three of us are, and think about the additional challenges that come with interactions with the state, the way the state constructs motherhood and particularly problematizes and prosecutes and persecutes to a great extent mothers who come from indigenous backgrounds, mothers from visible minorities, mothers who experience poverty. We wanted to step back and allow people who had a lot more lived experience of those situations to share their voices with the group. And so that's what we did. We, again, had a large group of people. We had a whole lot of setup for kids and we created a space that was really welcoming for kids. We constructed ourselves into a large circle. But we didn't all talk at first. The group as a whole did a lot of listening to several speakers we invited who shared their stories with us. It was powerful in a different way, I think, 
that event was, as Suzanne mentioned, focused on the state. I think by this point, we had explored it from our perspective with the contemporary events of the day, particularly with missing and murdered Aboriginal women mm-hmm. at being the top of our mind and the ways in which the state, you know, sure, it pressures us to breastfeed, but it takes people's kids yeah. and destroys communities. The ideas of what is a good mother are, again, part and parcel mm-hmm. of what is beneficial for capitalism. So committing genocide against Aboriginal people in Canada is essential to Canada's legitimizing existence as a nation state. So the state has a particular vested interest in, you know, no, no better way to eradicate a people than, to, you know, as we know with residential schooling, right? Taking people out of the people. And so through cultural assimilation and by destroying communities through those intergenerational bonds. So we wanted to give space to that and also to women in prison, recognizing most women in prison are mothers. And what is that experience of having your child taken away from you? By giving those places space, what was amazing is that other women from marginalized and racialized communities came and took over the space. We did very little facilitating. Mm -hmm. They took over. And it was awesome. When we finally did the go around, almost everyone was just saying, thank you. In a way that recognized that the intensity of the conversations, that people really heard something that they could empathize with, and that was new. This one that was the new central library downtown, so the active child space was outside of the room, but we actually had lots of babies just crawling through this intense conversation, so babies wrestling in the middle of talking about residential schools, for example. Mm-hmm. And so it added such a human element to this mm-hmm. really intense conversation <laughs> that I think the effect of that yeah, was palatable having the children there, which is people's experience in other places around the world, just having the Mm -hmm. children present at these things, but certainly is not our experience here. And people at the end were like, and the kids were just in the room and it was fine. You're like, yes, it it was fine. What a (laughs) lesson to learn, right? Where do you see this work going for your collective? Loosely, in terms of future plans, we're talking about perhaps staging some public events and perhaps putting in place some methodologies of critique, I suppose, that look at the way that public space is occupied and used and who it tends to be constructed for and how that influences who's in public space. So from our perspective, children, but I I think it has much larger ramifications. So we're looking at maybe staging some occupations of public space, public buildings, showing people what it looks like to have a lot of children in public rather than, again, using spaces by default as individual mobile human beings who behave according to this very narrow set of rules. The other side of this social reproduction and motherhood thing is the devaluation of children in our society and the invisibility, the invisibilization of children. And so this idea of actually taking children into these public spaces where most of the time they're not allowed. I mean, and this is part of the reason for the isolation of mothers, right? Because if your children are not allowed in spaces, then where are you supposed to go? So as a mother, you're also isolated and invisibilized because of the way that as a society we feel about children. Yeah. Yeah, so we really want to question that idea of allowed. Because single people functioning in a society tend to look at children as a disruption, as a hindrance, and as a bother. And to classify a set of human beings like that is a tremendous problem. 
when you bring large numbers of small children into a space, it's either a fun five-minute diversion for the adults in the room who then want them to go away, or it is disapproved of. That kind of attitude is widespread. It is pervasive. And it is ultimately a selfish and damaging way to be as a society. If we expect certain models of behavior and we expect everyone to conform to them, that is a really narrow construction of society and it's a really narrow construction of public space. So uh, some of this is pushback from what seem increasingly to be anti-child ideas and anti-child norms that have sunk into our social fabric. On the one hand, we seem to fetishize children as spoiled little emperors, and we've constructed a notion of the modern parent as someone who caters to that to a histrionic degree. And at the same time, as a society generally, we are moving away from children as a part of a normal social fabric. So if children are specialized and even just privately owned, and we're all supposed to be privately responsible for our own little monsters, what does that say about the society we live in? And what does that say about the notion of community? What does that say about the responsibility of all people, whether they have children or not, to nurture, to accommodate, to welcome people of all ages and abilities and sizes and attitudes and functionalities within our social fabric. It's an interesting politic, you know, to try to keep the politics of motherhood. And when we think about, you know, I think Kennedy did a fantastic job of describing, like, the intersections of patriarchy and capitalism and trying to fit children into that, too, I think are, I think where we're going and to some extent is articulating very clearly how women's labor is exploited and at the bottom of it all, children are dehumanized. I think what really is critical to me about these politics, the politics of caring labor that's unwaged and not recognized by society is that it really is the stuff of life and our fate all hangs in the balance. You know, when I'm older, I'm going to need people to do the things that I cannot do. There is an importance to having another generation. This idea that we choose to be child-free is just, you know, I think individualism has just pervaded everything so intensely Mm -hmm. that our work also encompasses a certain type of advocacy for children. You hear from some people that they are childless because they don't like the politics of parenthood, right, and the way that we raise children and the kind of expectations that falls onto the shoulders of parents as individuals. Obviously, that's understandable, but the the answer cannot be, okay, let's just stop having children, right? The answer has to be, okay, so let's challenge the way that we raise children, challenge what it means to be a parent, because this caring labor, this is just an example of caring labor. There are all kinds of caring labor, and it is our responsibility as human beings to care for each other. And it is also, I mean, I think that it is the most important thing that we do, right? This is Mm -hmm. the most important thing that we do, and you can't just not do it. You don't get to just not do it. Everybody has to do it. You have to take care of somebody. You have been listening to my interview with Candida Hadley, Suzanne Marshall, and Andrea Smith of the Halifax Motherhood Collective. To learn more about their work, search for the Halifax Motherhood Collective on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.